Hi, it's Fraser here with an incredibly exciting announcement. Spiked's Brendan O'Neill has written a brilliant new book and it's out on the 5th of June. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto and it's essentially a rallying cry for more heretics and more blasphemers against the conformity of our age. It covers COVID authoritarianism, gender madness, climate hysteria, and all the horrendous attacks on enlightenment values and free speech that are going on in today's society. It's available to pre-order now on Amazon UK or Amazon US, but also we've got an incredibly special offer for you. Anyone who donates 50 pounds or more to Spiked can get themselves a signed copy while stocks last. To do that, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash donate. Plus, to celebrate the launch on the 5th of June, we're organising a very special live event. The great Andrew Doyle will be interviewing Brendan O'Neill for an extra special episode of his podcast. If you're a Spike supporter, you can go to that for free. Just find your ticket and claim it now in the Spike Supporters Hub. So whether you're pre-ordering or donating for your signed copy, don't delay. Get your hands on this book right now. You will not regret it. Thank you so much, and I really hope you enjoy the book. Hello, and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and back with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And we're delighted to welcome, from the Academy of Ideas, Jacob Reynolds. Oh, thanks for having me. Coming up on today's show, a new trucker's revolt, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, and Harry and Meghan's car chase. So a new truckers' revolt is in the offing. Uh, HGV drivers in Denmark have been blocking roads, ports. They've been protesting outside Parliament over a new truck tax. And this is part of a plan to essentially force truck drivers to um, adopt electric vehicles and part of the broader kind of net zero push. Tom, I mean, this is clearly a bigger thing. This is part of a wider European revolt, I think it's fair to say, against net zero. We're not just talking about taxes in Denmark for mm. any odd reason. Um, what have you made of it? No, I think it's really interesting. As you say, it's just the latest development in that broader sort of workers' revolt against these net zero policies, which disproportionately fall not only on ordinary people, but particularly people who have to drive for a living, who have to work with their hands for a living, who have to work in the very industries that we all rely on, but the elites have suddenly turned around and decided that they're surplus to requirements in the pursuit of net zero. So seeing these scenes in Denmark, you know, shutting down very key roads around airports and ports and so on, even to the point where you've had the kind of truckers union meeting with the transport minister, not much coming of it. But nevertheless, it's quite clear that across Europe, people are standing up and their leaders are having to take notice um, because one after another you just see these kind of punishing rules brought in this one as you say this truck tax kind of like a per mile green charge for HGV drivers if they're driving a diesel or a petrol it's incredibly punishing and these are incredibly important industries um, and the story is the same as always that they're, they're doing this headlong kind of rush towards cutting their emissions by I think 70 percent by 2030 uh, and in the absence of any of the kind of whiz-bang green technologies they always claim to have but don't actually exist, um, that just falls on the backs of working people. So it's a, it's another expression of that thing that we've seen in Europe, that we've seen across the piece, that we're increasingly seeing in the UK as well in slightly different forms that we might get onto. Um, and I think it's just incredibly inspiring, genuinely bottom-up. There's no kind of... This isn't something which is funneled through a particular political party or anything like that. 
And I think it just shows that particularly in the midst of this cost of living crisis and everything else that's going on, people are just refusing to put up with it anymore. And Jacob, do you think the elites are slightly detached from reality here? Because, you know, in Denmark, they're attacking truck drivers. Um, absolutely vital to the modern economy, transporting goods around the place. Um, in Holland, they're attacking farmers. You can't live without food. Um, in various other places, you know, we've seen similar uprisings of working people in general. I'm thinking of Gilets jaunes in France. I mean, what planet are they on to think that they can get away with these kind of punishments? Yeah, well, as, as Tom kind of mentioned, the the fact that this stems from so many of the targets that they've kind of, in, in one sense, they've like put in these targets, given them like a nice bit of virtue signaling, we're going to be X percent carbon neutral by yeah. X date or whatever it is. Um, and then they're slowly working out that in order to get there, well, something has to be cut. And in an almost, there's a kind of quasi-Soviet fashion to it where they've like decreed the plan. Yeah. We have to cut by this. And then they're searching around for anything. And then, as you say, they're kind of dis detached. They don't necessarily probably know many farmers or many truckers. And they just don't understand the impact that these commitments, which may well seem nice on paper, mm. the real effect that they have on people's lives. And the only, that's why the logic of all these commitments is inevitably further forms of austerity. Yeah. In the absence of decent, plentiful energy supply, the only solution is to cut things. And the cuts are always going to fall on the backs of ordinary working people. Yeah, and that, that's the thing, isn't it, Tom? As things stand, it's only hardship that is kind of coming down the line. If you think about every, the attacks on energy, for instance, you know, replacing reliable sources of energy with unreliable sources like renewables. If you think about the attacks on heating and gas boilers, you know, heat pumps are not as efficient as bog-standard gas boilers. These new technologies can't heat your home up by as much or as quickly. They take forever to, you know, they take 72 hours or something to heat up your home to 10 degrees less than the, um, the old technology. Mm -hmm. How can people be expected to put up with this? Well, I think they're, they're not, and that's what's been so inspiring about it. But you, you're so right to point out the fact that something like these net zero targets, they're not ambitious, they're crazy, like mm. they're unachievable. The only way that you could possibly achieve them is by doing it off the backs of ordinary people, is by imposing the kind of austerity that Jacob was talking about yeah. there. You know, there's nothing wrong with being ambitious, mm. <laughs> but at the same time, if you're in a situation where you still need people to produce food, you still need people to funnel your goods from one end of the country to the other and the infrastructure is simply not there i mean like in this country there's been constant discussion about the fact that even if everyone took up electric cars tomorrow you know leaving aside the debates that go on as to whether or not they are actually as carbon neutral as people like to make out and so yeah. on yeah um that's just not the infrastructure for it let alone a fleet of heavy goods vehicles it's just ridiculous but i think it is particularly interesting the fact that um, in a situation, I can't speak to Denmark particularly well, but certainly can speak to the UK, in a situation in which the state increasingly f is incapable of doing anything, you know, yeah. issuing a passport in a timely fashion, um, stopping people from making a very perilous journey across the channel, um, anything that's from large or small, serious or whatever, pressing issues, <laughs> to longer sewage term out issues, of the rivers. <laughs> keeping sewage out of the rivers, stop, to literally stop your own citizens having to swim in shit. You can't do that, but you, you're convinced that you can push water up a hill in mm. relation to all of these net zero policies in the forms of technology which aren't going to deliver. Um, and it's just one of those things that is, is so striking, which is the kind of insane ambition in a sense of what it is they're trying to achieve. 
but with the fact that it's not feasible in the first place. And even if even if it was, that you wouldn't trust these people to deliver on it anyway. You know. <laughs> and um, you know, one thing that's striking is that there is a near, certainly in Westminster anyway, or um, wherever the relevant place is uh, in your country, uh, there is a total consensus across the political mainstream that all of these restrictions have to come in. And so it is interesting when you do see what these groups bubble up. I mean, in the UK, it's probably a little bit more incohate, I would say. Maybe each campaign takes on its own thing. There's been the campaigns against LTNs, the campaigns against ULES, people um, attacking uh, you know, the cameras and things like that. Um, what do you make of that kind of um, opposition to it and, it's, and the resistance that's sort of rising up? Well, yeah, I mean, some of it is to some degree baked in because they're not going to deviate from these targets. I mean, even as we speak, I think there's still a conference going on right at the heart of the EU in Brussels. There's not just kind of a net zero conference, not just a reducing energy conference. It's a conference about degrowth yeah and that's being funded by the major eu institutions so that if anything the elites are kind of in their particularly detached way of doubling down on all of this mm. and, and as you point out because this is being balanced on the backs of ordinary people it's almost inevitable that there will be a response and i mean we perhaps when the lights start going out here because there's not a plan for generating energy in the uk we'll see something of a more kind of significant uh set of protests in this country but you are right they're right across europe and anywhere else at these I mean, we still remember the canadian truckers for example like, yeah like that at right across europe whenever these and the western world more generally when these policies are implemented the results are that people's lives and livelihoods put at risk and that's only going to result thankfully and happily um and to be celebrated in more protests and i'm glad you brought up the canadian truckers because of course that wasn't related to net zero but it was you know related to mandatory vaccinations a kind of another elite policy a kind of laptop class policy that made complete sense to um, the people at the top and made no sense to people um, at the bottom who didn't want to put up with these restrictions mm -hmm. on freedom no exactly and i think that's always the story is that you have this kind of elite um, delusion colliding with common sense and ordinary people's lives and i think one of the things that's been fascinating that does connect everything back from the canadian truckers through to the dutch farmers through to the danish truckers even to some of the other you know, go slows that we've seen in Birmingham recently in relation to clean air zones and so on, is the fact that you have, in many instances, um, populist working class revolts against the elite, which the left is completely not involved with. If anything, it can't lead them. It doesn't really want to lead them. It's disparaging of them, if anything. No, exactly. I mean, a good example being in, in Denmark, you know, these policies were brought through by the previous social democratic government and the parties to its left with their backing um, but even in terms of as we've seen with the story of the gilets jaunes as well even when there's an uh, interest on parts of some sections of say the french left to try and lead this revolt they're incapable of doing so because of the fact that when it particularly when it comes down to the particular policies that we're talking about really they're on the side of the elites on those particular questions so as you say that they they can't lead these things they also don't want to lead them as you suggest and I think what we're witnessing is was one of the things that makes it so positive is that you have a kind of working class uprising, which is completely outside of the left, which considering how <laughs> how much the left has, has gone into disarray in recent years is a very positive development, I think, in many respects. Spiked is looking for interns. We need people to help us to make our fresh, hard hitting journalism that will reach audiences around the world. If you're an aspiring writer, editor, video maker, podcast producer, then this is the opportunity for you. So you have until the 16th of June to apply. And if you're successful, you'll be joining us here in our London offices for six months paid. 
Find out more about the scheme and how to apply by going to spiked-online.com forward slash interns. That's spiked-online.com forward slash interns. Best of luck. So the eyes of the world are back on Ukraine. It's been the key theme of discussion at the G7 in Hiroshima in Japan and at the um, great meeting of the Council of Europe um, earlier this week as well in, in Iceland. Uh, Jacob, I mean, we're in a bit of a strange period of the war where we're waiting for a much expected counteroffensive to happen from Ukraine. And a lot of people have a lot of hope riding on this, thinking this could potentially be decisive. I mean, where do you see us? Uh, where do you see us as being? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting, you know, that there's a lot of hope riding on it, because I think that's true in two senses. There are loads of us like myself who kind of would love to see Ukraine retake significant parts of their territory and kind of make a strike another blow for national sovereignty. But there's also a kind of sense of, among lots of Western elites that they kind of need this to be, or they'd really like this to be kind of decisive because they're beginning themselves to, fit, to become tired of the whole affair. Yeah. The, the US would much rather focus on China, as we know right from the start of the war when the, the US was kind of eager to have it over and done with and so just wanted to evacuate Zelensky. So the, the point being that there is this kind of weird dynamic playing around the counteroffensive where it, it both is important for those of us who want to defend Ukraine's sovereignty, but also has become to occupy this outsized expectation in the hearts of the elites where they kind of hope that this thing can get over and get done with. And sadly, that's not going to happen no matter how successful ukraine is the, the war will still continue because there's only so much you can do in a certain space of time mm. um but more broadly on on the offensive i think i mean from what most people can gather i think you might say that uh it has started in some form or another yeah. because you don't i mean unless you're planning d-day or something you don't just wake up one morning and say right on the 7th of may we're going to throw everything we have so as people have seen there have been kind of uh, beginnings of shaping operations there's been these kind of trading of territory around bakhmut um and so on so something or other something is is kind of starting and uh, the exact shape that it will take nobody quite knows one of the things that i find slightly encouraging is that the ukrainians do seem to want to play they want to test the defenses here try out something there to constrain the supply lines over here they don't just feel that they have to kind of demonstrate to the world that they're ready to do something big and that actually they can kind of uh, take the military uh, situation on its on its on its own terms and respond to what happens so yeah there's a lot riding on what happens Next, one of the things that will be very interesting is the way that, uh, and in one of my pieces of spiked, I noted this, that the Ukrainians are going to be asked by Western countries to perform a kind of grand maneuver-like counteroffensive. But the, the Western countries have only ever done this kind of thing with extensive air support. And that's the one thing they've refused to give Ukraine. So there's this kind of, kind of two-handed approach that lots of the West have. Yeah, that's, that seems to be the, t I mean, you know, you can go back to any point in the war and there will be a debate over what kind of weaponry is appropriate. And usually the West reluctantly agrees to, to give it. But at the moment it's over these uh, F-15 and it's the Americans who are stalling on that. What do you make of that, Tom? Well, I think it's the, it's the story of the whole of the past, was it year and 80 days or whatever it's been since the full-scale invasion began, which is that you have a kind of... Uh, cautiousness, which on the one hand is obviously understandable, um, particularly at the beginning of the conflict, concern about escalation and, and so on. But I think what we're kind of, what one thing that maybe we undervalued from the beginning is the fact that part of that cautiousness was not purely bred of we're worried about this spinning out of control. It was also bred of a lack of belief in the Ukrainian people to be able to resist as yeah. well. There was this kind of, as you were saying, Jacob, with offering Zelensky a, a, a airlift out as soon as, as soon as things 
went haywire. There's just been this constant underestimation of what the Ukrainians are capable of and the successes which they have um, mounted, which have been stunning over various points of the conflict and, and the earlier counteroffensives that we've seen, you know, have really spoken to that innovativeness, um, that ability to really kind of take this on themselves, any kind of notions that they're all just taking their orders from Washington, D.C., I think have been rubbish by, you know, what we've seen really on the ground. But again, you do get that sense that there is this um, growing impatience. I think you saw it even expressed in the recent Pentagon leaks and so on. The content of that really kind of gesturing to the fact that there are people even within Washington, D.C., which puts up a very firm front that there is a kind of sense of exhaustion a wish that this would just really go away so they wouldn't have to deal with it whereas what's been clear from for, for a very long time now is that in the same way that the ukrainians are in for the long haul the, the west if they do want to support them in their struggle need to be as well um but it's one of those things where so much will come down to what happens in this counteroffensive and also how this counteroffensive is interpreted really how it's how it's spun how it's taken um, the mood amongst Western publics, but all of that remains to be seen at this point, of course. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about the other side, about about Russia. I mean, clearly they're not meeting their aims, but obviously we shouldn't be too triumphalistic. They haven't failed yet, so to speak. Yeah. But it is surprising to a lot of people that they haven't managed to take the Donbass, for instance, that there is still significant fighting over places like Bakhmut. What do you make of that side of the, the ledger? Yeah, well, I think there are two major factors at play from the analysis that you can kind of Get, I think one is that the kind of situation of the Russian army is such that it, the large scale offensive of which they tried at the beginning of the invasion they're just not capable of and they mm. learned that lesson kind of quickly so everything has been since then uh, much more incremental um, and alongside that of course is the fact that it's very hard to motivate an army to fight that doesn't want to fight yeah. and that you don't have to be a kind of expert on military strategy to know that okay sure you put people on the front lines lots of them no matter what side they fight for will be heroic in their own way but th there's no reason been explained to the Russian public about why they should participate in this war uh, they're trying to develop some kind of national narrative but every, it's obvious to everyone this doesn't really uh, cut a lot of, of sway in in Russia so that key factor which has swung wars since time immemorial of morale and yeah. the willingness to fight it's obvious that that isn't necessarily there for Russia in the way that it uh, is clearly for Ukraine um, uh, and and the second issue is Russia is effectively constrained by the fact that there's only so much mobilization that can go on in Russian society. Mm. They want to make more moves towards kind of uh, in, in putting more efforts of, towards the war economy. But ultimately, there's only so much that Putin can ask of the Russian people before yeah. they start to ask, well, what do we get in return? Um, and this puts a fundamental constraint on what Russia can do. They can mobilize certain numbers of people, but there's only so many kind of Russian bodies that can come back uh, from the front that Russian society will tolerate. And so Russia has this dynamic at play where there's only so much that they're able to do because they're rationally constrained by Russian public opinion to an extent. So they're, they're, to summarize that in a way, it's the, the fighting machine isn't there logistically and in morale, but also they're not able to, still not able to mobilize society because no kind of clear reason for the war has been given in the way that an obvious reason for the war is for uh, Ukraine's side. But also, I mean, I suppose the, the problem is that they can still grind out a long war, as as we've seen, you know, there are there are many people to put into the meat grinder. Um, this could just be a very you know difficult and long and protracted struggle, and especially because of how of what the Russians have 
prepared to do yeah. as well. I mean, particularly in terms of the bombardments that we've seen, or the attempted bombardments on Kiev in recent weeks, um, even you know during Eurovision, you know, pummeling the town of the contestants at the time in which they were on stage. The kind of that kind of mix of sort of evil and bitchiness is yeah. embodied in that particular instance. Um, and similarly, you know, all the fighting around Bakhmut, you know, with the um, Wagner Group, this kind of this uh, company of you know former drug addicts and rapists and so on who are just being kind of thrown at the fighting on the one sense all of this is very kind of fearsome and scary and kind of meant to demoralize and so on but it also does speak to that fundamental weakness as you were suggesting there jacob because you do not have a kind of a um an, an army a kind of force which knows why it's there which is keen to you know uh, again kind of execute particular policy that is really behind what it is that they're doing you've got a mixture of mercenaries and um, bombardments happening from behind their own particular line very comfortably undertaken so that imbalance which has been there from the very beginning is surely only going to make itself more felt as we go forward and, and finally i just want to see what you made of some of the um smaller acts of sabotage some of the assassinations that have been going on in particularly in in russia um i mean Sometimes we don't know who's behind what. You know, Nord Stream is still a mystery to us. But mm. there's been it, it's as if the war is spilling beyond the front line quite significantly. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you were great to run. There was a brilliant piece that you ran from Mary Dzerzhevsky that uh, kind of that really did hit this on the head. That the degree to which the war is spilling over, and that that no one can quite, I think, work out how much of this is there is a growing resistance movement inside Russia made up of Russians who oppose the war, but also that Russia has never. I mean, at least since the Chechen war, has never had to fight such a kind of mobilized and well-resourced and motivated foe. And Ukraine has demonstrated very clearly that they're not going to allow this to just stay within the borders of Ukraine, no matter how much it, this speaks to your point about Ukraine not being dictated to by the West, who would love to keep this as a regional conflict. But Ukraine knows that if it's going to affect the course of the war, it has to hit logistics hubs behind the behind enemy lines. It has to deliver kind of some shock and awe in Russian society. So we see some high profile assassinations that were quite possibly or very likely orchestrated um, by the Ukrainians, although even that's not clear because it could be internal Russian descent. The p overall point being is that the war is putting enormous strain on the political system inside Russia. And it's not clear yet whether the kind of increasing attempts that the uh, Putin is making to uh, develop a narrative for the war, mobilize society around it, it's not clear whether this whether Putin's Russia can survive this kind of a strain because the 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 kind of bargain in Putin's Russia had always been you stay out of politics yeah. and we will deliver a kind of stable economy we'll save you from the chaos of the Yeltsin years mm. but basically you don't have to worry about the world we'll take care of it and you'll have a nice western standard of living with you yeah. know uh, holidays and and, and McDonald's and, and McDonald's and, <laughs> and all the rest of it so um so yeah and as that gets called into question mm. it's unclear whether Russian but whether the Russian elite has enough kind of ideological and material stuff to yeah. mobilize and, and kind of motivate Russian society. So the strain inside Russia is almost as important as what's going on in the battlefield. And, and Tom, finally, I mean, there, there's been talk of this week of sort of two rival peace plans, the G7 peace plan and the Chinese peace plan. Um, the issue there is, of course, everyone wants the war to end. But on what terms? You know, uh, clearly Ukraine isn't prepared to give up territory. Is there a danger that, you know, they'll be pushed into doing that? Well, I think that's that's certainly been the concern as you've seen Western resolve start to wilt a little mm. bit in, in recent months and weeks is that those voices um, who were 
calling for diplomacy, which has often been a kind of code word for giving up on Ukraine's part, have started to become a little bit louder. They felt that they've got the wind at their back. And it does feel like so much does hinge on this counteroffensive because depending on how it goes will decide where the kind of weight of opinion in again, kind of Western capitals fall seemingly, or at least how it starts to shift. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that, you know, the West is going to sell out Ukraine next week, but I think a lot of the discussions that we've been seeing, a lot of the kind of mood music that has been playing of late um, has suggested that there is that nervousness, once again, that kind of concern that maybe Ukraine aren't properly up to it. So, um, however unfortunate and kind of presentist that this is, so much does hinge on the coming weeks and months, really, in terms of what happens next with Western support for Ukraine, definitely. There's a degree to which the, in this question of the, the peace is, as you say, on one hand dictated to by the West, but the discussions of it always leave out the key actor, which mm. is Ukraine. Yeah. And obviously, if Ukraine, never got any, if Ukraine never got another weapon, obviously it would struggle to fight the war, but there would still be a conflict in Ukraine. It might not f have the same shape. So the idea that uh, kind of, we in Europe can just kind of wash our hands of the situation, which is not quite what people articulate, but is what lots of people do dream of. That's that's not an option. And so we're faced with this difficult situation of how how do we still faced with this difficult situation? How do we manage the fact that there is an enormous war in Europe? And nobody has, as yet has a good answer. And that's important because the anti-war set, or the so-called anti-war set, <laughs> mm. they act as if, if America withdrew their support tomorrow that Ukraine would just give up and go home There's yeah. this, because they genuinely believe that it is the West who are directly fighting this war in some some meaningful sense Ukraine is just a proxy um, but I think so much it does speak to and we've gestured to it already several times is that so much of that can't we just have diplomacy can't we just make this it's, it's a desire to make it all just go away to yeah. kind of hide from the conflict itself and its potential consequences and also from the the big historic challenges it raises. I think so much of that um, desire for it, um, these kind of coded calls for diplomacy, which has always just been a call for Ukraine to give up, is just that people would rather kind of pull the bedclothes back over their head and ignore what is a incredibly serious conflict, which is gonna have a knock-on effect, not just for Europe, but for the entire world. So from the very off, I think so much of that has been driven by just a desire to hide, really, from what is going on, rather than to actually confront the scale of what it is that we're looking at. So the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, claim that they have been involved in a near-catastrophic car chase. They say there was a paparazzi chasing them relentlessly, a relentless pursuit for almost two hours, and it actually came to near, many near-collisions. Tom, um, to coin a phrase, uh, recollections may vary, um, and people, witnesses on the ground, have suggested that it might not quite be so catastrophic yes the diplomatic thing to say in this situation is that there are two sides to this story Harry and Meghan's side to this which as you say is that there was this near catastrophic chase that went on for two hours that it was relentless um, also some members of their security team have gone onto the media and said that you know people could have been hit you know these yeah. paparazzis were, were really out of control then of course you got the response from the NYPD who called this near catastrophic car chase challenging but didn't really <laughs> go much further than that um, you had New York's Mayor Eric Adams um, who said he struggles to believe that you could even have a two-hour car chase around lower Manhattan yeah and if anyone has ever been to Manhattan or to any major <laughs> city you um, wouldn't have gone very far to say that not yeah. At all. Yeah. I mean it would have been a car chase at about seven miles an hour or something mm. so um, 
that again has stretched credibility. One of the cab drivers who was taking them around for at least a portion of their journey said he wouldn't call it a car chase. And while they all look understandably quite nervous, who wants to be harassed by Paps? Obviously, that it didn't really stack up. Of course, none of us were there. We don't know. But it is difficult to look upon these claims with anything but a level of scepticism, given the fact that we've been here so many times before, where um, recollections have varied to a pretty wide degree when it comes to, to Harry and Meghan. And you can't help but feel, particularly in the context of Harry and his ongoing legal cases recently this week against the UK and his security and so on, um, that maybe, just maybe, their truth was getting ahead of the real truth in this particular situation. But I couldn't, I daren't comment, obviously. Well, yeah, we can't say for certain, but you know, we have an idea. Um, Jacob, um, there is a tendency to, for them in particular, but for many people in public life, to exalt their kind of victim status, mm. to say that they have, you know, suffered like no one else has suffered. Do you think this, is, this could potentially be an example of that? Well, you've got this dynamic that's a play in all celebrity dynamics where they like this love-hate relationship with the with the press or the, the pap, as it were. That in this case, it's particularly acute because in order to... That their whole narrative has been that they can't they can't stay in the UK, that they can't that they can't fulfill any royal duties, rather because of the relentless media attention, which they obviously on the one hand kind of crave, but on the yeah. other hand abhor. Um, and this just seems like another extension of it. It's very convenient. It comes hot on the heels of the coronation mm. and that you feel that they maybe have been out of the limelight for not long enough. It also, I mean, to me, it has slightly macabre undertones in that there's this sense that they want to draw on some of the legacy of the Diana's relationship Absolutely. with the press, which yeah. I find, I mean, it's, it speaks to this whole kind of weird Freudian thing that Harry's got going on uh, that was as in evidence in the in the memoir. So that there's almost a sense that they need that kind of they need to continue funneling this Diana-like macabre energy in order to give them this credibility. So it's it's almost worse. It's worse than it just being a victimhood complex. There's this kind of persecution Freudian complex going on. I, I wonder if I should just uh, clarify so the extent of the Freudianness. Um, <laughs> the he talks about in the in spare among many other things actually being reminded of his mother when he's applying this um cream uh, to his frostbitten royal member um which is you know too much information i guess um <laughs> tom i mean harry and meghan have revealed everything about themselves they have relentlessly um emptied out every skeleton in their closet and their families too and yet they crave privacy above all else, mm -hmm. apparently. Well, I think that's the thing, because they've never really been in search of privacy. Um, what mm. they've wanted is to be able to control what people say about them, or to push back very heavily against what people yeah. say about them, or not to have to put up with the kind of paparazzi that when you're that much of a kind of megastar that you do, unfortunately, mm. have to put up with. I mean, th there's an added irony in all of this, in the fact that and, and many kind of... Uh, media reporters, media commentators who talk a lot about the media and how they cover the royals have pointed this out, was that in terms of things like paparazzi and that kind of intrusion, is that that's actually calmed down a lot, particularly in relation to the royals. Since Leveson, also the kind of post-Diana experience in general, there was a genuine kind of um, reassessment of all of those kinds of tactics and so on. Um, and so if anything, they're more exposed to this kind of stuff in the US rather than here, which is ironic given the fact that they felt they had to leave Britain in order to get away from all this horrible media and so on. But so much of this is, is just about not wanting to have to put up with... They want the media on their terms. They just yeah. don't want the media not on their terms. And that, I think that's just underpinned so much of this 
whole circus and what has made them so ripe for ridicule because you've got, again, this couple who are never out of the media, who are obviously very conscious. I mean, in a sense, their whole role now is as glorified influencers, essentially. Yeah. Megan was there collecting her award for being a kind of leading feminist light. Women um, of Vision, I think it was women called. Of vision. Which is a great description of her. Exactly. Um, what that constitutes, we're never entirely sure. <laughs> what, well, yeah, what visions is she having? Right? Vision straight into the mirror and back again. I mean, it seems to be largely <laughs> talking about herself and her own exploits. Visions of uh, exotic high-octane car chases, I think. Apparently well. so. Allegedly. Um, allegedly. But um, that, this is the thing about, about Harry and Meghan. And I think especially at, at, at this point in time, I think... And one of the reasons I think this story began to either unravel or become a bit more complicated, depending on your perspective, the reason that happened so quickly is because even in America, which I never thought would happen this quickly, that level of scepticism towards them has started to grow. Mm. Um, people who were originally very willing to believe that this lovely couple were just treated terribly by the British tabloids and the horrible racist English they've been a little bit overexposed to them as well now. And they're starting to kind of see the exaggerations or the embellishments, shall we say, that they've been engaging with. And, and that's not something I actually saw happening this quickly. Yeah. It definitely has started to happen. And to draw a kind of broader point out of it, Jacob, I mean, you know, how, how can they get away with presenting themselves this super rich couple, originally part of the British monarchy, <laughs> as victims as the most put upon people on earth the you know people we should feel sorry for and pity yeah well as you noted this speaks to the way in which victimhood is the currency of our elites and that they need the kind of validation that's given to them by victimhood status because they can't make any other kind of positive case but that, i mean there's also another serious point to draw out of this which is that if you so self-consciously debase the public private divide if yeah. you self so self-consciously try and bear every private detail including like the most private of institutions in a way the monarchy if you try and, and, bear, your, and your frostbitten penis and your frostbitten penis if you keep trying to put these things out into the public sphere you are literally breaking down that one thing that gives you the security between when you're out on the street and when you're kind of in the privacy of your taxi or whatever it is, which is which is the public-private divide. And that's a very serious uh, kind of long-running problem that we have is trying to regain this balance between public and private. And the, the contemporary fascination with bearing all only serves to diminish this, which only means that there's no protection for people who are in the public eye. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.